Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In China, seasonal floods have come early and in abundance, wiping out crops and tens of thousands of homes and displacing millions of people. Our correspondent visits a town that is, for now anyway, on an island in the middle of the Yangtze River. And you're getting very, very sleepy. Or maybe not. The pandemic is causing a lot of lost shut-eye. So people are increasingly turning to bedtime stories for adults. Why not drift off to the tones of Matthew McConaughey, Stephen Fry, or John McEnroe? But first... Earlier this year, Israel seemed to have marshaled one of the most effective responses to COVID-19. By late May and early June, it had pushed new cases down to a handful a day. At the time, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was upbeat, boastful even. He said Israel had handled the virus better than nearly any other country in the world and predicted that by the end of this, we will be the best in the world. But recently, the virus has flared up again. Now it's spreading faster than in any developed country, except for America. In response, thousands of Israelis have taken to the streets in protest. So what went wrong? Just a couple of months ago, Israel seemed to have its coronavirus outbreak under control. Roger McShane is The Economist's Middle East editor. But it's now being hit by a new wave. Cases have spiked to over 2,000 a day. So the government is locking down again. And how did it get this bad again, if it seemed to have had the virus under control? Well, if you talk to public health experts, they, they say the government opened things up too fast and didn't take uh, the necessary steps to, to keep the virus under control. Um, that might sound a little odd, considering that Israel tests for the virus a lot. It's a world leader in testing per capita. The problem has been its contact tracing program, and that's been overwhelmed. There aren't really enough nurses to track uh, people who may have been infected. And you have a lot of politicians calling on uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, to hand that program over to the defense ministry, which has a lot more manpower. And, and what role has the prime minister played in this so far? Is, is he responsible in any way? I mean, from the start, Netanyahu has really hogged the, the spotlight in the, in the fight against the coronavirus in Israel. He's, he's held daily press briefings during which he sort of veered from explaining the government's policies to bragging about its response or, or really about his response. Um, and, you know, he really hasn't delegated a, a authority. Uh, only now is he uh, appointing a coronavirus a czar, so to speak. 
And you saw this with the contact uh, tracing program. Uh, you know, the defense ministry probably could do a better job with it, but it's run by Netanyahu's political rival, Benny Gantz. And Netanyahu, he, he's been reluctant to let anyone else take credit for fighting the outbreak. So he certainly doesn't want to let Gantz be seen as the one who now brings Israel back from the brink. And how does this dynamic compare uh, to, to elsewhere? Is this similar to problems we're seeing, for example, in America in terms of, of opening up too fast and so on? Yeah, in some ways it's similar to America you know, in as much as a lot of states in the U.S. also got complacent and opened up too soon. Um, and, and Netanyahu looks somewhat similar to Trump in as much as they were out front early on and, and saying a bunch of things that, that don't look great now and, and really didn't sound great at the time. Um, but there are a lot of differences. I mean, Israel is, you know, for starters, a much smaller country. It's more like an American state, really. You know, it only has about 9 million people. Um, and it has had a much more centralized response than in America. So as cases have spiked, you know, you have a situation in Israel where the government can shut things back down pretty quickly, unlike in America, where it's state by state. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the Israeli people are happy about the, the new closures. How so? What are the Israeli people saying? Well, a lot of people and businesses were upset with this latest round of closures, and, and they really blamed the government for bungling the response. And you know, an example is sort of restaurants, which reopened in May, um, and right before last weekend, the government told them to, to close again. Um, but immediately, there was this outcry from restaurant owners who had already bought all this fresh food for the weekend. So then the government reversed itself and told them they could stay open with a bunch of restrictions. And it just, it's all looked a bit haphazard. And it's really, it's, it's come across in Netanyahu's poll numbers. I mean, fewer than a third of Israelis are satisfied with the way he is handling the crisis. And lately, you've had thousands of protesters come out in cities like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, um, in part to demand more aid to people and businesses hurt by the outbreak. And, and a lot of people um, are calling for Netanyahu's resignation, although that's not exactly new. And so it's kind of piecemeal closures at the moment. Is a full lockdown in prospect at all? Netanyahu has hinted that uh, a full lockdown could be in the offing if things don't improve. Um, but that would be disastrous for the economy. And so I think he's going to try to avoid that. You know, the economy is already set to contract 6% this year. Unemployment is at 21%. You know, before the outbreak, it was at 3.4%. Um, and so you know, one of the reasons why people are protesting is because they don't think the government has done enough to help on the economic side. Um, and Netanyahu recently announced a plan to hand out a stipend to all Israelis, but even that was criticized for failing to target the people most in need. So how do you see this playing out now? What what measures do you think, in the absence perhaps of a, of a full lockdown, will we'll get this back under control? I imagine what you're going to see is that the defense ministry will be given more of a role in the response. And, and hopefully that will bring things or at least help to bring things under control along with the new lockdown measures. Um, but look, it's tough enough to make predictions about Israeli politics, uh, let alone about both uh, Israeli politics and the virus. Uh, one thing worth mentioning is that there is sort of a, a silver lining to the crisis in as much as Israel has seen relatively few deaths from COVID-19. If you look at the numbers, it's reported um, something like 52,000 cases, um, but just over 400 deaths. So that's a pretty low mortality rate. Um, and that's probably down to the fact that Israel has a pretty young population and offers high quality universal health care. 
I can see why you don't want to make predictions here about politics or, or pandemics, but they do kind of intersect in, in, in the form of Mr. Netanyahu. Do you, do you think that the disquiet about the way he's done this will uh, bring his time to an end sooner? I don't think you can ever count Benjamin Netanyahu out. I mean, that's sort of the golden rule of Israeli politics. But he does face other challenges. Uh, last week, a court said that his corruption trial, which was postponed due to the lockdown, that's going to begin again in January. And it's going to take place three times a week, and the prime minister is expected to attend those sessions. So critics are going to increasingly ask, you know, does Netanyahu have time to both stand trial and to govern the country? Now, Netanyahu may try and wriggle out of his legal troubles by holding an early election. That, that's the rumor right now um, going around Israel. Now, that would be Israel's fourth election in the span of two years, and I'm pretty sure that Israelis don't want that to happen. Uh, so these are really the actions of an increasingly desperate prime minister. Thanks very much for your time, Roger. My pleasure. 140 the National Meteorological Center warned yesterday of the risk of further flooding and landslides. Water is piling up in the massive Three Gorges Dam, where the official warning level has long since been passed. As the Chinese government struggles to control the disaster, there are questions as to whether the country's approach to river management has been oversold. Water levels are high, forecasts for rain run out for the next couple of weeks and beyond. Uh, we haven't really hit the height of the rainy season. That's what makes this year look like uh, an especially bad year. Ted Plafker is The Economist's Beijing correspondent. The rains started early. They've been heavier than expected. The Yangtze and many other rivers all over southern and central China are under a great deal of stress, and they will be testing the limits of China's ability to manage water. And you went to, to, to take a look. I mean, what, what's this like on the ground? Yeah, I, I drove up from Shanghai, um, rented a car, and just drove myself up the river for a couple hundred kilometers. And the most interesting place I got was this little island that sits in the middle of the Yangtze. It's connected by a couple of small bridges. It's a very sleepy island. There, it's an odd collection of enterprises. There's a police dog training institute, a ping pong training academy, a little eco park, and a bunch of fishing resorts and fishing restaurants. And this one place where I got some people to talk to me were... Um, saying that their little walkway out to a fishing pier was already just a few inches above the water. Usually it's a meter above. And they know that upriver already disaster is striking. Towns are being evacuated. So what's happening upriver then? Tens of thousands of homes are already destroyed. Millions of people are evacuated. They're releasing water here and there on various dams, trying to manage it 
sort of hour by hour. They even blew up one dam in another province, in Anhui province, which is part of the Yangtze Basin. Uh, the dam on that Chu River, it's a tributary of the Yangtze. Crops are inundated. And the Yangtze River Basin is is one of the biggest industrial heartlands of China. It affects all kinds of industry, heavy industry, electronic industry. And in our current age, it happens to be a main center for production of PPE that China is now exporting all over the world. So there are concerns about um, disruptions in that global supply chain, which would be very bad news at a very bad time. And what's the government been doing about these these floods and, and risk of more floods? They are trying to manage the rivers. They have dams up and down all of these rivers and years and years of experience in managing the flows. And they let some water out. Those are difficult decisions, too, because when they let water out, they know that certain local areas of less dense population will be flooded and people there will be affected. A couple of years ago, I was in Shandong province reporting on some floods and people were very angry because water had been let out onto them to save a more important city downstream. And they sort of understood the logic, but they didn't feel very good about it. So those decisions are being made on a daily basis. That's in the short term. In the long term, the government has a very interesting big plan about modifying its entire approach to managing the Yangtze River. Right. And that has to do with the Three Gorges Dam, the behemoth on the Yangtze. Everyone has heard of the Three Gorges Dam, which was completed in 2006. Massive, massive engineering project. But a lot of people opposed the dam for a variety of reasons. And the government pushed it through. And it was sold as this this miracle thing that was going to improve the river in any number of ways. It was going to improve navigability. It was going to enhance China's ability to manage water for irrigation supplies. It was going to control floods. And of course, it was going to produce massive amounts of power. It hasn't yet produced the amounts that were promised. And a lot of the other benefits have been called into question. So a lot of the critics are now saying, I told you so, they oversold it, we told you they were overselling it. The government, of course, is committed, will not admit that it was a mistake to build it. But they seem to be forsaking big infrastructure projects in the future and looking to a more overall holistic approach is necessary. Industry needs to be moved away. Local ecosystems need to be protected. The ability of the land near the river to absorb water has been badly affected. Much of it's been paved over and uh, they don't need to keep strapping big dams on it. They need to restore the systems and some of the natural flows and some of the natural ecosystems around the river. So is the consensus view that these floods, these early floods, are are, uh, caused by failure to to control the river, or is it something out of uh, of the government's hands, climate change, for example? Yeah, there is a very clear consensus that climate change is increasing the frequency of extreme events, uh, precipitation in the rainy season, more severe drought in the dry season. Scientists are very reluctant to look at one year's anomalous weather and say that is climate change. But the data and the papers, all the peer-reviewed papers and the general consensus among Chinese and, and international scientists is that the effects of climate change are being felt and increasing the pressure on the river systems and the dams built onto it. But in the meantime, lives have already been lost and, and really very many more are at risk. Very much so. It's early in the rainy season. The forecast for rain just stretches out as far as you can check. And they expect a lot more stress and a lot more damage and a lot more suffering. Um, They've raised national alert levels to the second highest. And I have the sense that they're not prepared to raise it to the highest level until much deeper into the season. I think there's a sense of uh, keeping their powder dry. If you raise it to the top level now, what do you do when it gets even worse? Which it, it seems bound to happen. Thanks very much for your time, Ted. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. 
For a lot more analysis from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. If you know the name Harry Styles, it's probably because you associate him with this. That's what makes you but like so many stars, Mr. Styles has decided to diversify. I'm Harry Styles. And tonight, I'm going to help you drift off to sleep. He's just one of the many celebrities getting into the burgeoning industry of bedtime stories for grown-ups. People looking for a soothing nighttime voice can listen to Matthew McConaughey. Well, hello there. Tonight, I'll be reading a special sleep story called Wonder. Uh, they can listen to Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child. They can listen to Joanna Lumley or Stephen Fry. And I'll be your guide as we meander lazily through the lavender fields and sleepy villages of Provence. There's a huge list of celebrities who are getting in on this nighttime action, so to speak. Rachel Lloyd edits Prospero, The Economist's culture blog. There's um, a number of apps which have launched to address this lack of sleep that adults are struggling with. So Calm is the sort of front runner, has really cornered the market on this, but Headspace have released Sleepcasts, which are designed to help people nod off. There are other kind of podcasts and music uh, playlists for people to listen to if they're struggling to nod off. And how has the appetite for these sleep stories grown? In 2016, Calm released its first sleep stories. They released 23. Now they have more than 200 that you can listen to. It spans everything from fairy tales to travel stories to sport, and they've been listened to more than 250 million times. And presumably part of that rise in popularity is due to all the lost sleep during the pandemic. But, but what is it that makes a good bedtime story? There has definitely been an uptick in demand for these stories during the pandemic. There was a study by King's College London and Ipsos Mori that found that half of Britons have had more disturbed sleep in lockdown than usual. But what makes a good sleep story is something that's not going to jolt you awake, obviously, but they're about 30 minutes long. So that gives you the opportunity to really activate your imagination. You're transported to another place and the most popular and kind of recurrent form of these stories is a journey. It's literally just someone taking you through different landscapes, describing them in detail. The majestic white-capped mountains encompassing the horizon. The snow-covered boulders and rocks dotting the shore of the sea. It's a way of transporting you away from your anxious thoughts of the day and helping you get into a calmer and more soothed place. But there's no plot twists, nobody jumping out from behind shower curtains and the like. No, not at all. And um, Chris Advinson, who's the head of Sleep Stories, is actually a former screenwriter. And he said it was really strange when, they f when he first started writing Sleep Stories because all of the tools that you normally use when you write a story, conflict, tension, um, character development, all of that kind of stuff has to be put to one side. The whole thing is not that they're boring, but they're not gripping. It's nothing that's going to keep you awake. It's so that you can focus on the story and escape the cycle of anxious thoughts that might keep you tossing and turning at night. So who's, who's writing all of these stories? Calm has a number of different people on their books. Some of them are crime writers, some of them are novelists, some of them are journalists. One woman I spoke to called Phoebe Smith is a travel journalist and she adapts her own work to fit this format. What was really interesting is that she said the things that would not make her journalism, so the really detailed descriptions, the sounds and smells of a place, you know, the texture of a particular tree, 
those are the sort of things that really are needed in a sleep story. She also gave me the example of a story about Madagascar where she left out the details of some of the wildlife because lots of people are scared of snakes. And if they were described a snake in the middle of a sleep story, they would probably wake up and not go back to sleep. And and so are you uh, making use of these yourself? Or are you listening to bedtime stories these days? I have been listening to them. I found I was one of the 50% of people that were struggling to sleep in lockdown. So I've been listening to all sorts of different ones. I will confess that they've been very effective, apart from one narrated by John McEnroe, which did not really work at all. The whole point of them is that they offer some sort of nostalgic comfort, that it's the sort of childhood experience of cozying up to someone familiar and then reading you a lovely story in a sort of soothing, deep voice. And I think a lot of people, it's appealing because it's the chance to sort of cuddle up with a celebrity at night. Rachel, thanks very much for your time. And when the time comes, sleep tight. (laughs) You too. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.